This is The Feed. From Markham. From Richmond Hill. From Vaughn. From Aurora. East Gwillimbury. Whitchurch, Stouffville. From everywhere you are. This is The Feed, York Region's only news magazine dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. A week ago, many of us had never heard of the word Omicron, let alone incorporate it into our everyday language. What a different story today. The world was suddenly on high alert after the WHO announced November 26th that there was a new variant of concern crisscrossing the globe, Omicron. Ontario Public Health at this point is trying to keep a lid on panic by not pulling the emergency brake. But you know what? People are worried. They're upset. What's frightening is how little we know about Omicron. What's really scary is how much we don't know. Dr. Glenn Pyle is the COVID-19 Resources Canada co-lead for Ontario and co-lead for the Science Explained Initiative. Dr. Pyle is a professor of biomedical sciences at the University of Guelph. He joins us now on the feed to help us understand this new variant, Omicron, and what its presence means to our future. Thank you, Dr. Pyle, for being with us on the feed. Much appreciated. Uh, Thanks for having me. So let's talk Omicron. Apparently now we're hearing word that there had been some sign of Omicron in Nigeria in October, so well in advance of the WHO's announcement November 26th. Tell me what you know about Omicron right now. So what we know is that it was uh, first reported in, in South Africa, but that doesn't mean that that's where it originated. And so your, your comment about tracing it back earlier in other countries is is spot on. Um, South Africa has a very good monitoring system, so um, they picked it up uh, first. What we know about it is that it has a large number of uh, genetic changes, which are often referred to as mutations. That's a very ominous sounding word. All it means is that the, the genes that the uh, the virus uses um, have have changed. Um, so there's more of these mutations than we've seen before, and more of them are in uh, what's called the spike protein, which is the protein that the virus uses to help infect cells, but it's also the protein that the vaccines are directed against uh, to try and protect us against infection. So how will it be determined whether Omicron is more easily transmissible than, let's say, Delta, and that it could possibly create illness that is worse than what we've seen in in past strains. So we need to see uh, Omicron in a larger population. Um, What we've seen so far um, is, again, the the data largely out of South Africa is the um, it's spread in a group of students, university-age students. Uh, These individuals are less susceptible for severe illness anyway. So we've seen that that they don't have the severe illness um, that that can uh, occur with COVID-19. So that's uh, at least some good news that we we don't see it worse in a population that was uh, relatively low risk to, to begin with. But as it spreads and starts to reach other segments of the population, people who are at risk because of age or other uh, disease factors, the immunocompromised, things like that, uh, that's when we'll get a true sense as to how dangerous this is, if it's in fact more dangerous than what we've seen before. That's what's important to, to remember is it doesn't have to be more dangerous than what we've seen just because it has more of these genetic changes. So, Dr. Pyle, do you think that this new variant, this variant of concern, might encourage, the presence of it might encourage the those who are reluctant to be vaccinated to actually get off the fence and, and roll up their sleeves? So I, I will say I hope so, and, and it's unfortunate that we have to, to say that, but, you know, a lot of us aren't motivated to uh, to do things until we see these significant changes. And so if people are concerned um, that they might be at, at greater risk for infection, then absolutely they should go and get, get vaccinated. That would be great because we know uh, the data so far show uh, the people who are vaccinated seem to uh, be protected against this new variant um, in ways that are similar to what we've seen with, with other variants. These data are very preliminary, um, but so far the reports are encouraging that we're, we're not seeing a lot of, um, uh, of higher rates or more severe illness in the uh, vaccinated population. It's still primarily a condition of unvaccinated individuals in terms of severe illness. So if this encourages people because they are concerned about their risk, that's great because the the vaccines are very safe and effective. um, So they're not taking on more risk by getting vaccinated and they may actually be helping.
Dr. Pyle, do you think that the booster shot is going to have to be adjusted to uh, be, I guess, inclusive of, of Omicron? So again, it's it's too early to to know that um, data that's just come out of Israel shows um, that uh, people who are within the, the the effective range for their second dose, which is generally about six months, uh, seem to be uh, reasonably well protected. Again, these these data are very early, so things could could change. And if they are beyond that that uh, time and they have been boosted, they seem to uh, have similar levels of protection as what they've seen before. So. The, the question is to whether we should expand the, the boosters to a, a wider population. Too early to, to tell. Uh, but again, you know, we have to balance uh, being able to provide boosters for those who need it most um, and giving it across the, the broader population. But the, the data so far seem to suggest that the boosters are helpful. COVID-19 Resources Canada, of which you are the co-lead in Ontario, recently launched something called Vaccine Conversations. It's a program aimed at teaching Canadians how to talk about vaccines with groups in their communities. So when the WHO made this announcement last Friday, so a week ago Friday, the 26th of November, it caused panic in a lot of places, including right across Canada. Would this have been the right time to have had a, a poignant vaccine conversation. It's it's never a bad time to have that that conversation. Uh, again, maybe this this stimulated the, the conversations and and drew people's attention um, back to to the virus. You know, we we might some people might have become a little complacent. Um, so maybe this this stimulated. But it's always a good time to have conversations about vaccinations, how they're safe and and how they're effective. Vaccine conversations. So I have a quote from its co-founder, Dr. Tara Moriarty. Everyone is an influencer, whether you are the CEO of an organization, the facilitator of a community group or faith leader, or the head of your family. So it sounds like everyone should be paying attention to vaccine conversations. Well, for sure, because uh, everyone has to make that decision um, as to uh, when you should get vaccinated, you know, what the risks and, and benefits are. But we also know that if you're um, asking questions, the, the people that you're going to be most comfortable asking those questions to are, you know, your peers, your friends, your your family members, the people you, you work with. And so if those people have the information to share with you, uh, that's where the best conversations are going to take place. They're, they're lower pressure. Um, they, they tend to be, you know, less judgmental, uh, which is was what we're going for. We're just trying to provide people with that information, and so hopefully by reaching out to people you know, you can have those conversations and then use the information there to make your own decision about what to do. So explain to us how vaccine conversations works. So the, it, the workshops it's virtual. Some of it it, it can be live, and and some of it is not. It it but it's accessible to everyone in this country. How does it all work, Dr. Pyle? So Vaccine Conversations actually um, is a, um, an extension of something that we've been doing for, for quite a while now, which are our vaccine Q&A sessions. So these were sessions um, generally in the evenings, about an hour long, and people could just sign up and, and come in and ask their, their questions um, about vaccinations. We had everybody from community pharmacists, infectious disease physicians. We even had uh, Peter Doherty, who, who won the Nobel Prize for his work in, in immunology, come and um, answer people's questions about COVID-19 vaccines and, and children. And the feedback we got from that was that, you know, the information was great. It was very helpful, but people wanted to be able to take that information and, and go and talk to uh, others about it. And so with these workshops, uh, the way they work is people can sign up. They're online. They're free. So there's there's no pressure. Um, and it's about a, a two-hour long workshop, and, and people learn how to have these conversations, how to do it in a way that's that's not judgmental, to answer questions that we, we often get and, and so forth. And then they can turn around and take that information into their community, whether that's a school, whether that's their faith-based community, whether it's family members. We continue to provide support afterwards. So, so there are online resources uh, at our website at covid19resources.ca. People can go there 
and get the information. And we also provide links, again, to, to experts where if you have a question, you can reach out and, and ask those questions uh, to people who, who work in the field and can provide you with that, that content. And how effective do you think that these vaccine conversations have been? And how will you adjust as we go forward with news coming out every week, it seems, about either a new variant or issues in other parts of the world or lack of vaccines for, for third world countries? How do you handle the changing landscape of vaccine conversations? So we already know from um, earlier um, issues in, in science that, that people are, are most comfortable talking with the people that they, they know. So these these conversations will be more effective just, just based on that. And we certainly have already seen that with people reporting back saying that, you know, they've had these conversations with friends and family members and they've been receptive um, to that. So, you know, we're already starting to see that information come back. How we adjust is that, you know, most of us are, are scientists or researchers or physicians and, and we're, we have to keep up to date on what's, what's going on. And so we, as the content experts, will continually update ourselves um, and share that information with the network and, and get that information uh, out to them. So by having those people come back, read our resources, speak to the, the people um, that are part of COVID-19 Resources Canada, uh, we can continue to keep up on things uh, as things adjust over time. And where could people go to get more information or to be a part of the workshops? So our website is covid19resources.ca, and up in the uh, the top of the screen, there is a, a link for the vaccine conversations. They can click on that, and that will take you directly um, to the site where they can sign up. But there are also a bunch of other links at the top where you can, uh, you know, get other resources and, and find information if you're interested in it. Dr. Glenn Pyle, COVID-19 Resources Canada co-lead for Ontario Vaccine Conversations. Thank you so much for this conversation on the feed. Thanks for having me in. Earlier this week, a grim milestone was reached. 10,000 Ontarians have died from COVID-19. A very sad statistic, but for Luciana Krupe, a shocking reality. On December the 6th, 2020, she lost a husband. Victoria and Anthony lost a father. York Region lost one of its own. Joe Krupe was a happy, healthy, and fit 65-year-old when the virus grabbed hold and took his life. Joe had followed all of the public health guidelines to protect against COVID-19, but sadly, his death came just months before the discovery of the vaccine. Unimaginable sadness engulfed the Krupe family as they tried to make sense of how and why this happened to their beloved Joe. One year later, his widow Luciana joins us on the feed to remember Joe Krupe. Luciana... How are you doing today? Hi, Anne. It's nice to hear from you again, first of all. Um, how am I doing today? That's a loaded question. Um, I have to say that a year later, the pain is maybe not as intense as it was the first few months after I, I lost Joe, but it is still there, and I, I keep constantly getting reminders and triggers and um, you know, just, just, I could be grocery shopping and something will happen. Something will trigger me. Or I could be standing at the kitchen sink and I'll remember him walking in and, you know, big smile on his face or the other way around. He could be upset about something, whatever. But it, it, I just have constant day-to-day memories and I'm trying to live through those as best as I can. I've got my lovely children with me and honestly if it wasn't for them and for some very close friends that uh that have keeping have kept sorry have kept me you know in better spirits if you will um I don't know where I would be so there's your answer to that I don't I I whether I'm better I am a little better because I don't cry every second of the day but that doesn't mean I don't hurt every second of the day you and your children and your friends have been so active and proactive when it comes to keeping Joe's memory alive, but also fundraising. And I know that. And this is something you've done tirelessly since Joe's passing. Where did that come from? And what does that do for you in terms of healing? Oh, well, the fundraising actually came uh, from when Joe was in hospital and he was still alive. Um, my son was convinced that whether he makes it or doesn't, we were going to do some sort of fundraising for Toronto General. Having been in that hospital 
at such a uh, such a difficult time of of uh, COVID. Um, I saw the way those doctors and nurses were just running back and forth, putting on garments, taking off garments, putting on masks, taking off masks. Like with every patient that they saw, it was. You know, imagine yourself walking into a room and walking out of a room because you forgot something. You have to dress and undress all the time. It was just, I couldn't believe what they were going through. So we saw it firsthand and we wanted to do something. So that was in the back of our head. Um, When Joe passed, our first inclination was to do a fundraiser for Toronto General and for Markham Stovall Hospital, the two hospitals that he was at. And um, it just it just took off. It was unbelievable. So from there, um, you know, we raised two hundred and uh, eleven thousand for Toronto General, fifty three thousand for Markham Stowville. But then it didn't end there. We went ahead and did a car rally in September, which was phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And in your quiet moments, in those darker moments of your day, and I'm sure that they are there for you every day. It's just still so new and so raw. How do you feel about the work that you've been doing to keep his memory alive, but also to raise really critical funds for hospitals? I think that's the one thing that keeps us going, uh, knowing that we're keeping his name alive, um, that he's being recognized in these hospitals. His name is everywhere. He has a room that's dedicated for himself, for you know, in his name, um, for other people to go in and 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 have those moments of thought that, you know, where they may be making the most critical decisions that they have to make. Um, uh, you know, seeing his name on some of these machines that uh, are saving lives, things like that just make me feel so good inside that we are doing something to to remember his name. Um, I think we're going to continue doing a car rally every year, from what I understand. We raised $34,500 in our car rally in September, which was, I'm telling you, I wish you could have been there Mm because it was out of this world. It was fantastic. And Dr. Grant and also um, the doctor that took care of Joe during his um, illness, he came out and he accepted the check and said some very nice words. So. Yeah, those are things that are you know we continue to do, and hopefully we'll we'll um, we'll raise more funds for for the hospital. Luciana, am I able to ask you some uncomfortable questions? And I don't want to put you on the spot, but I'm sure that it's something that has crossed your mind over this past year. A couple of months after Joe died, uh, there was the the discovery of the vaccine globally and the rollout, subsequent rollout, Joe missed that. What's your response to that? And how do you make sense of that? Oh, that was just so unfair. And I remember the day when I went in to get my vaccine, um, the first thing I thought of and the first thing that came to my head was, oh my God, he missed this by just a few months. Like, why couldn't he have been as lucky as these people that are in here getting their vaccine and, and as and lucky as me because I was sick at the same time with him. And um, I, I, I was just, I don't know, I can't explain that feeling that came over me when I was sitting there getting jabbed. I really cannot explain it. It was sad and at the same time I was, I was so excited about getting it yeah. and I wish... I wish that he was there to, to get his. That's all. Do you ever wonder why, why Joe, why, why this happened to him? You know what, Ann? I remember sitting there. He and I both sat there when we heard that we were both positive. And honestly, it was, and I'm, I'm sure I'm feeling like a lot of people who feel um, when they get COVID that they're, oh, it's, you know, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get over it. It's going to, it'll, it'll pass. We both felt that, to be honest with you. We were both on that side of the coin. And the minute he started feeling worse, I thought, oh, my gosh, this could have happened to both of us. We could have both been in ICU. And it just, it just, it's unbelievable how quickly it can turn around. And I know, I have known several people ever since Joe has passed away. I've known several people that have gotten COVID 
and have been hospitalized and, and have been in the exact same place as Joe. Some have made, made it and some have not, unfortunately. But it just goes to show you that it can change on a dime. And that's what people don't realize when, when they hear of COVID because, you know, they all have this idea that it's going to, it's just a cold, common cold or, you know, that kind of thing. And for many it is. For many it is. But the point that I'm trying to make is it can change. And that's what we have to be aware of. You had a very strong message for us the first time that you and I spoke together on the feed here at 105.9 The Region. And that message was, you've got to take it seriously. What is your message today about COVID-19? Nothing's changed. It's the same. You really have to take it seriously. And a lot of people have let down their guard. And I'm sure a lot of people, including myself, are so tired of hearing it about it. So tired of opening up the news and hearing, you know, COVID-19 back at it, but now we have a new variant. Oh my God, you know, the eyes are rolling, I'm sure. But this is serious and it will change your life. You will not believe how much and to what degree. You know, if, if I would have thought a year ago that I would have been going through what I'm going through now, I wouldn't, I wouldn't have put a bet on it because I wouldn't have believed it. Um, you know, like people have to take it seriously. People must get vaccinated. And I know there's non-believers out there. And for whatever reason, I can respect everybody's decision. But for me, I'm helping myself, I'm helping my family, and I'm helping others by getting the vaccine. Luciana, what are you going to do on December the 6th? What are you going to do on that day, the first year anniversary of the loss of your husband, your beloved Joe? I think we're just going to take some time to think about his memory and what he's, he's brought to my family and to his friends. Um, we're going to have a mass to celebrate his one year. Um, I'm going to perhaps raise a glass of wine in his honor and uh, be with my family because they have been with me and, um, and, and try and just honor his name as best as I can. I thank you. I thank you. I thank you for sharing your thoughts about Joe Krupe, your husband, your, the love of your life, and also your family, your children, Victoria and Anthony, and what they mean to you and what they've meant to you. And every day, I hope and pray, is a little bit easier for you, Luciana. Thank you so much, Anne, and thank you so much for bringing awareness. I want to thank the station as well for, um, you know, um, promoting the car rally way back in August when, when before we, uh, we had the rally in September because they, um, they were phenomenal, bringing attention to everybody. And uh, I want to thank you for interviewing me and for hopefully raising some awareness to people out there that maybe aren't so sure about getting the vaccination yet. Thank you, Luciana Krupe. Thank you. Take care, Anne. And you as well. Coming up on the feed, technology drives the innovation economy and the potential risk with QR codes. Stay with us. Do you have a story idea for the feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of the feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region. Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. Our next couple of stories focus on the impact of technology right now and in the future. Tina Cortez with the Progressive Plans. What will the world look like in 2041? Is technology driving all sectors of the economy? With the 20 predictions for the next 20 years is Sanjay Padak, partner and national leader, technology strategy and digital transformation services KPMG in Canada. Welcome to the feed, Sanjay. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. So if we examine the innovation economy, is it safe to assume 
that technology is driving post-pandemic growth? Yes, I do believe that technology is one of the um, most critical components of post-pandemic growth. And, you know, a lot of it manifests in ways that we would see directly. For example, people are working from home. They're using, um, you know, what we call telecommuting technology, video, um, uh, audio and video conferencing in order to, to be as productive as they possibly could. They're using much more technology to access enterprise systems to do their work, for example, for, for people in the technology sector. But, you know, there's also a lot more going on in the background, which is, you know, in the day-to-day interactions that we have, um, you know, with, with our world, um, everything from, you know, delivery of, of food. Um, mm-hmm. You know, for a long time, people were being discouraged from going in, uh, into supermarkets or into stores. And so a lot of the, the technology componentry that drive e-commerce, um, that drive um, interaction, things like having food delivered to your home and uh, all those kinds of things have really, really taken much more precedent. And a lot of the bugs um, that existed that were tolerated before have started to really, really go away. So certainly in the, in the near term, in terms of post-pandemic life, as we know it over the last 18 to 20 months, technology has, has really been at the forefront what this um, top 20 predictions um, survey or, or study was looking at was not just post-pandemic in the near term, but in the longer term, I think now that people are a little more comfortable with what the next wave of technology is going to do, what it's going to drive, and the innovation it's going to drive, I think people are starting to become much more comfortable with that technology being much more uh, and a much more integral part of their lives. Okay, the suspense is killing me then. What are some of the predictions for the next 20 years? What have you got for us? <laughs> well, let me, let, me start by, <laughs> let me start by framing um, how we looked at those, those um, 20 predictions. So, uh, you know, the, there, were, there were four megatrends that we kind of looked at. The first was that Canadians will live to be 100 years old. And that's really underpinned by the belief that rapid advances in science and technology will significantly improve the health and well-being of Canadians. And technology is going to allow us to get much more of a real-time look at our da- the data on our health and being much more proactive and much more preventative about things that could, you know, um, uh, could affect us. So that's the first one. The Canadians will live to be 100. The second megatrend was really that work as we know it will be much less of a chore and more of a passion. You know, a lot of people talk about the great resignation and the great reshuffle. There's been a lot of movement, um, and we see it as well. I mean, there's a huge talent, skilled talent shortage in the market across all kinds of different sectors. And so, you know, part of this is being driven, we believe, by the fact that work will be less of a chore and more of a passion. Mm-hmm. The third megatrend is around a sustainable planet being leading to a sustainable economy. I mean, there's no, there's no doubt that the the issues we face around things like climate change, pollution, um, resource management, recycling, et cetera. These are all things that are, are, have been at the forefront of our consciousness, politically, socially, et cetera. And we believe that's not going away. A sustainable planet will equal a sustainable economy. And then the last one, the fourth one, was that the world will interact with us in a more personal way. So many of the things I just described around immediate um, impacts of technology on post-pandemic life um, Technology is going to lead to even more personalized experiences and even more possibilities around what we're calling immersive experiences, right? People talk about virtual reality, et cetera. Mm -hmm. There's so much going on in terms of how we can create um, more immersive virtual experiences for people. So, for example, you know, the people will shop from home. And I know that, you know, that's one of our predictions, actually, by the way, is People will shop more from home, and and some might say, well, we already shop from home. What's the big deal? Well, you know, it's not just about the experience of transacting with a a merchant or a store online. It's about their products becoming a far more significant part of being in your home and being able to visualize and see and feel and, and be more tactile with those things. So that kind of personalization is really, really going to accelerate Did you have a chance to ask Canadians what they think about some of these megatrends? Yeah, no, we definitely, we definitely did. Um, you know, we had a poll done on some of these megatrends, and you know, I would say that we didn't do the poll on the megatrends so much as we started to ask questions that would feed um, and sort of support or, or debunk the hypotheses, right? And so, you know, from a national level, just quote some of these things, um, some of the things we found. You know, 
with extreme weather pollution and loss of farmland, I worry about our food supply. 83% of people are worried about the food supply. Um, you know, 90% of Canadians thought that, uh, think that we need a more circular, uh, circular economy where nothing is wasted. Um, 43% of people worry that their job won't exist in 20 years time. Um, and you know, to, to, uh, <laughs> another point, uh, that's, you know, probably a little bit more about what's coming in the future. 67% of people, of Canadians believe that medical advances will support Canadians living to be a hundred. That's significant. That is huge. So there's a lot, there's a lot, I think, that Canadians are thinking about today. And, and our poll wasn't necessarily asking, what do you think is going to happen in the future? It was really more about looking to ask people what they believe is going to be coming in the future. And our job was really to take all that input and sort of say, okay, well, where is this going and how is this going to manifest? And what specific technologies do you think will transform our lives in the future? a great question. Um, you know, I, I, can, I can tell you that there, there's, the answer is there's some that we know about and a lot that we don't know about, if, if I'm being honest. So, you know, the sectors that seem to be um, most active today in our innovation economy in Canada, you know, fintech is something that's come up quite a bit. Health tech is something that's coming up the curve in a big way. Ag tech, which is really agricultural tech and clean tech, um, these are all things that are very real and very, very much um, being um, executed right now in the economy. FinTech, you know, has to do with the advances, uh, the digital, uh, the advances in, in, in digital financial services. So not just about, you know, online banking, but even going further and saying, how can we create more personalized and encapsulated experiences for, for, for consumers? If we look at ag- agri-tech uh, or ag-tech, you know, this is an, a really fascinating one for me because, you know, it's it's about how do we optimize food production and how do we use innovation to get more benefit and more productivity from the resources that we expend in order to grow our food, whether that's meat or whether that's, um, you know, vegetables, basically everything to do with the agricultural economy. So there's a lot there. And, and I'll tell you this statistic. This is one statistic that kind of blew me away when we started to dig into it. The innovation economy, including the sectors I just described, Today accounts for 12% of Canada's GDP, and that's actually growing three to six times faster than traditional parts of the economy. So, so when you think about where the real, you know, not just where people are thinking things are going, but where Canada is investing and where our GDP is actually coming from, those innovation areas of the economy are growing really, really fast. In terms of future gazing, then, is it all about humans and machines or technology working <laughs> together so we don't become irrelevant? Well, you know, some of it's kind of fun. So, you know, a couple of our predictions here um, around, for example, uh, you know, one of our predictions was that in the next 20 years, a movie that is created purely by virtual reality and AI will win an Oscar. Wow. Wow. That's pretty fun. Yeah, that's right? pretty so, cool. So now you think about, you know, you think about CGI and all the difference of the special effects, and all of a sudden now we're talking about a movie that's completely created by, you know, a computer that would, would be compelling enough to us to win, uh, you know, our, that much artistic merit. It's actually pretty fascinating. You know, we may have all-inclusive holidays on Mars, right? That's going to be pretty interesting. Uh, we'll see, we'll see, we'll see if that comes out. That's one of our predictions. I'm certainly, I'm certainly hoping that, that it comes true. Um, but then also, you know, you asked a question about what technologies are coming through. You know, there's an area of technology called, um, quantum computing, which has been around for quite some time. And, and, you know, anybody who's involved in technology knows that many of these types of, um, uh, advances in technology are born out of our, our knowledge sector, right? They come out of universities, they come out of the funding that, you know, our governments provide in order to advance our understanding of high technology before anybody really truly knows what to do with it. And, and what we believe is that quantum computing is going to be at the forefront of that. Now, I, I don't want to get too far into the details of, of what that would be and what that would entail, but certainly there's, there's just a lot there. And, you know, when it comes, I mentioned, um, I mentioned about us living to 100. I think that many people that we polled would be more than happy to have more invasive techniques and procedures done on them in terms of altering 
um, you know, their genetic makeup in order to, to be more preventative about disease in the future and, you know, protecting their children in future generations, which, you know, there's a lot there around the ethics um, uh, of doing that in addition to the technology. Again, this is, a, and this is, a, this is only 20 years out. There's a lot there. Only 20 years out. Such fascinating research. <laughs> if our listeners want more information, where can they find it? The, 20, the top 20 predictions is on our website, kpmg.ca, and it's in, it's in the banner at the very top of the webpage. So if uh, people click there, they can, they can click through. We've divided up the 20 predictions into several different categories, so a lot there for people to, to chew through. And, you know, I, I would love to hear more from people in terms of what they think about some of these things because some make intuitive sense and some might just be too far out there. Be very, very curious to hear more about what people think. Can't wait to hear all about it. Sanjay, thank you so much for sharing these findings with us. Thank you for having me. It's been a pleasure. We don't need to look 20 years into the future to recognize how technology has already impacted our lives. And yes, our adoption was accelerated by the pandemic. QR codes, for example, seem to be required no matter where we go. Restaurants, price tags, uh, government documents. But while the QR codes are quick and easy and widely used... Are there risks? Alexander Rao, a partner in KPMG's cybersecurity practice, has been studying just that. Welcome back to the show, Alex. Thank you very much for having me, and it's great to be on the show again. So how do we protect ourselves as consumers? Yeah, very interesting question, and, and you're absolutely right that the, the usage of QR codes has, has very much increased over the last couple of months. We, we have seen them before on the odd ends, right? But now when we go to restaurants, when we go to public places, the QR codes are everywhere and have to be scanned. And so we're very familiar with the concept. But you're also absolutely right that there are some uh, dangers from a cybersecurity perspective and how consumers can protect themselves with regards to using those QR codes. A couple of things that we tell our clients and the general public is first and foremost, um, really make sure that when you're using QR codes to ensure that they're coming from a trusted source. So we all know we go to a restaurant nowadays, they might not necessarily have a, a menu anymore. They pointed to a QR code. So we can be fairly certain that that QR code is actually from the restaurant and points you to their menu. But uh, we go to places where we don't necessarily know where those QR codes are from. And if we scan something that we don't know where it's from, it could take us to a malicious website, for example, or it could take us to download some malicious code on our phone and could give malicious actors access to our phones and they could potentially steal personal private data from us. The other thing is that we should really make sure that we're only using the native camera app that's on our phones to scan QR codes. There's a lot of apps out there that allow us to scan QR codes, but uh, we never know what other uh, malicious code might be embedded in some of those applications that we're downloading. So by ensuring that we're using the photo app that's coming with our cameras, we are making sure that uh, we don't catch any sort of malicious activity or malicious codes that could allow as well attackers to download location data or other personal information from our phone. And thirdly, I would say never share your device with somebody. So if you are asked to, to show a QR code or something like that on your phone, um, don't hand your phone over to somebody um, because you never know if they're taking a screenshot or if they're what else they're doing, if, if, if you're not paying attention. And uh, also, don't let anyone take a screenshot or a photo of your QR code because they could misuse that QR code for other purposes than the purposes than you want to use it for. My goodness, so many things to think about. So if we are in a restaurant, we're scanning the QR code, how do we recognize, how do we know if we're headed to a fraudulent site? Yeah, that's a very good point. Oftentimes, when you scan the QR code, before you actually go to this website, you will be presented with that link that the QR code actually presents where the uh, website that is taking you. So if we take a closer look at that link, at that URL, that we're so familiar from looking at our web browser, like when we look at the top, and we also heard from a cyber awareness training perspective that when we get a phishing email that we should look at that uh, URL where it's taking us to make sure that it's taking us where we should go. It's the same concept here making sure that you double-check where the QR code is sending us before you click anywhere and it's taking us where we don't want to go. And what are the risks? What kind of fraud could we be exposed to? Well, the 
There's two-way fraud. There's like the identity theft that could happen if somebody takes your QR code, as I mentioned earlier, and takes a screenshot or a picture of that QR code and uses it in, in, an, in a situation where they have to show this QR code to somebody to prove that they have um, certain um, requirements fulfilled, right? So somebody could misuse your own personal QR code for their use and misinterpret who they are and what they use it for. So that's one thing. The other thing is that when we're scanning a QR code and uh, we, we, we retrieve information, we retrieve all the good information, and that's why we're using QR codes. They're so convenient. We receive information from businesses. They direct us to their websites. Now it's holiday seasons. They direct us to their shopping deals. But if we find somewhere a QR code that's maliciously planted somewhere, they could take us to a website that's malicious and could potentially download um, malicious code to your device that could continue to track you. It could, uh, could steal data from you and so on and so forth. And we don't want that. We want to keep our personal and private information to us. So it's really, really important that we only scan trusted QR codes. Now, in terms of the business community, can they make consumers feel more confident in the use of QR codes? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's a two-way street, right? On the one hand, we need to really educate consumers with what you're doing uh, and spreading the message that there is certain best practices that we have to follow. We just talked about those. But from a business perspective, I would also recommend that there are certain best practices that a business owner can use. Like, now, now business owners <clears throat> are using these QR codes to allow patrons access into the restaurant, for example, for sit-down meals. But we haven't had this before. This is all new. So what I would recommend businesses to really ensure that you're only scanning QR codes with business-owned devices and don't let, for example, employees scan with their own devices these codes because that way a business can make sure that the QR code scanning is only done for the purpose of the business and that there's no malicious activity going on, potentially QR codes being stolen or intercepted with devices that are not owned by the business. Um, maybe having a little privacy disclaimer at the door, why these QR codes are being scanned, right? We're doing this for XY purpose, and uh, we're not storing any of these QR codes, and they're only here for your benefit, and your personal identifiable data is not being stored. So a little disclaimer like that would be very helpful. and. Uh, and really knowing and ensuring that the clients know why you're using and scanning these QR codes, obviously to get entry, but also there's QR codes now within the establishments, right? And maybe a business owner should, or the employees should, at the end of the day, walk around the establishment to see if there's any QR codes that were dropped or left there that shouldn't be there other than the menus or guiding them to the restaurant, the restaurant's website. So awareness on behalf of both the business and the consumer. It seems like digital interactions, though, are, are they're here to stay. Do you have a final piece of advice? Yeah, so I think with your last comments, you're really bang on. I think it's about awareness. It's about uh, working together, right, like from a business perspective and a consumer's perspective. And lastly, I think the advice also is to just trust our organizations that they are doing the right things, what what they need to do in order to protect your data and why they're asking for this specific data and that they're not storing it. And uh, treat your QR code like you would treat your credit card or your debit card, right? You don't want to give your credit or debit card to somebody physically. You don't want somebody to take a picture. So it's almost like money, right? This is, you're protecting your privacy. And so, so, so treat it like cash or a credit card. Such great advice. Alex, if our listeners want more information, where can they find it? They could simply go to our website, uh, www.kpmg.ca, and search for cybersecurity, and uh, they can either contact us or find more additional information where they can uh, educate themselves about how to stay cybersecure. Alex Rao with KPMG Canada, thank you again for joining the show. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me, and uh, you're welcome. Thank you. After the break, we hit the slopes. Ski season is on. Follow us on Twitter at 1059theregion. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region.
Welcome back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer. If you're eager to get outside and stay active, the ski and snowboard hills are ready for you. Jim Lang hits the slopes. Well, we're almost that time, right? I mean, it's December. Winter officially rises the 21st. Snow's coming, so that means it's it's like Christmas three months in a row for skiers and snowboarders in the region and in this province and in the country to talk more about skiing and snowboarding in the province and in the country. Thrilled to be joined by Paul Pinchbeck, the president of the Canadian Ski Council. Paul, how are you? Well, I'm great, Jim. Thank you very much for having me on. It is uh, it is the most wonderful time of the year. There's no other way to describe it. The anticipation, the snow starting to fall. We uh, We skiers and snowboarders across the country are very excited. Well, in, in all seriousness, Paul, when you think about Canada geographically, we have different size hills in different regions of the country. There is, of course, the Blue Mountain Collingwood area. There is the Laurentians. There's Alberta. There's Whistler in BC. There's Grouse Mountain. There, there's something for everyone of every skill level, out level in this country. Oh, absolutely. Skiing happens in Canada from Newfoundland to, to Vancouver Island and uh, into the Yukon. And uh, it's, it's amazing what diehard enthusiasts and, you know, new skiers and snowboarders can experience in just about every province and territory. You know, and we forget about the, the, being in touch with the nature and the environment when you're skiing and snowboarding. And I just had a conversation with a young man who was working at my barbershop getting a haircut recently. And he said he went to Grouse Mountain. He's from Ontario. And you take the ski lift up with a snowboard and you climb up the steps and to the start of the run, they all stop because they could see the city lights of Vancouver and part of the ocean from Grouse Mountain. He goes, I couldn't believe this was Canada. And it, it, and you're, you're open, your eyes are open as a skier and snowboarder to the beauty of this nation. Yes, absolutely. I think we connect well with, with nature. And I, I've had the, the experience that that young man had had as well as standing there at the top of Grouse Mountain, looking out over, uh, over the ocean. And it's, it's fantastic. But there are fantastic things that happen in Ontario, whether that's, uh, you know, standing at the top of Calabogie Peaks outside of Ottawa, uh, whether it's in Quebec, uh, in the Charlevoix, the Massif, uh, which is a fantastic facility. You look out over the St. Lawrence River and uh, often see uh, uh, icebergs going by all the way down into Atlantic Canada. It's just uh, a chance to connect with nature, be outside, be active and outdoors. It's uh, fantastic. We have some friends of ours that uh, sold their house and they relocated to the Blue Mountain area of Collingwood but because they like the skiing and snowboarding and just the nature and the whole community feel. It's, it's not just being on the mountain. After you have some runs, there is that feeling of togetherness with the people there where you're having a drink afterwards, having a bite to eat. It's a destination. Well, absolutely. I think skiing and snowboarding, unlike many winter activities, are the greatest family and or family-like group uh, sport you can do. The socialization uh, that occurs on the hill, on the chairlift while you're skiing down. Uh, but then, as we well know, we're famous for that uh, term, apres ski. And, uh, you know, the opportunity to uh, to have a drink, as you say, to, to uh, connect with people, to connect with new friends. And that's what powers so many of our resort communities across the country is the fact that you're meeting people from all over Canada, all over the province, and in some cases, all over the world. And we hope to get back to that uh, all over the world part soon. Speaking with Paul Pinchbeck, the president of the Canadian Ski Councils, we are entering the teeth of ski and snowboard season in the province and in the country. And that's the one thing I think for a lot of people, when you're outside, there's that sense it's safe from COVID. Just explain to the listeners about the safety of being on the slopes when you're skiing and snowboarding. Well, you know, skiing and snowboarding last year saw no uh, known cases of skier to skier or uh, or skier to employee transmission across all of North America, and so uh, you know we put that down to the safety protocols that we put in place. Uh, in those days, uh, much of that feel, felt exactly like what you would do uh, uh, in your daily life: wear a mask, a uh, little bit of physical distancing, uh, wash your hands, sanitize. Uh, uh, you know, just generally all the things that we've all learned to be. Uh, uh, to be uh, uh, aware of. And then you kind of throw in some other things where, you know, ski lifts move at five meters per second. Uh, you're outdoors. There's lots of airflow. And we, we now know so much more about COVID-19 and how it's transmitted uh, that uh, I think we're poised to have a fantastic season outside and a great season indoors uh, because ultimately we will look a lot like uh, a lot like a, a restaurant does in in say downtown Toronto or or downtown Vancouver. There will be restrictions, uh, but we will uh, we will be great outdoors. 
I know, Paul, I know a lot of people, they're just counting down the days so they can go to Horseshoe Valley or Blue Mountain or wherever it is to get outside, they, just to get away from that feeling of enclosure because of the pandemic. And they just want to, even if they're learning, they say, I, I'm going to learn how to ski and snowboard just so I can enjoy it. Oh, absolutely. I, I, we're seeing uh, on our websites uh, a huge uptick in individuals searching for information on how to start skiing and snowboarding. And that's the mission of uh, the organization I represent, the Canadian Ski Council, is to encourage more Canadians to get out on the slopes. So, yeah, the core skiers are ready to hit the slopes across the country. Uh, they are literally chomping at the bit, as the expression goes. But new skiers and snowboarders are looking for that way to rec- recreate with their family, to stay healthy and active uh, in record numbers as well. And I think that's going to be an important uh, opportunity for Canada ski areas, no matter where you are, is to engage with all of the new skiers and snowboarders as they uh, as they come out this year and uh, and experience the sport perhaps for the first time. You know, Paul, it is amazing about the sport. I, I've seen five-year-olds. I've seen 85-year-olds. It, it's all inclusive. It doesn't matter what age you are. You can still get out there and enjoy it. Oh, absolutely. I, you know, I think that that's something that's often missed. I, I grew up as, as a uh, another winter sport player. I won't say which, uh, <laughs> but my sibling, my siblings uh, sat in the uh, in the stands while I played the sport throughout their uh, uh, throughout their uh, their childhood. Whereas, you know, our family, many families have multi generational experiences where granddad can ski with granddaughter, mom can ski with daughter uh, or son. Uh, couple ski together it's uh it's a sport for life and you know when we say it is the best family oriented winter sport it doesn't matter whether you're an alpine skier a snowboarder a nordic skier you can all experience that and you can experience the fun and uh and and connection and you know after all this pandemic i think canadians are ready for a connection unlike anything else so let's get this behind us and get out on the slopes i couldn't agree more paul before we wrap up i think a lot of people listening are like hey i do want to get into it but you would probably really appropriate to ask this question what are some of the do's and don'ts when buying equipment for the first time when you want to get into the sport i always recommend that people start with uh, uh the website go skiing GoSnowboarding.ca. That's our uh, general resource for getting into the sport. But when you talk about equipment, I I always recommend talking to a pro, whether that's an independent uh, ski shop in your local uh, neighborhood or your uh, multi-line, multi-brand big box store uh, that exists as well. Uh, get professional uh, advice uh, before one purchases equipment. And you know the truth is these days ski areas are changing. You don't have to own the latest gear to show up at the sport or at the ski hill and, and ski or ride. You can actually rent great equipment. Gone are the days of the terrible skis that are, that are uh, 15, 20 years old that we're, we're trying to. Most ski fleets are uh, between two and three years old these days. Uh, even ski areas, uh, there's ski areas around Ontario, around Canada that are offering seasonal rentals of equipment uh, to, in order to try out the sport, uh, give yourself a whole year without having to lay down the uh, the, the relatively larger sum uh, for a complete package. Well, that's a great tip. I mean, that's a real game changer. I didn't realize the equipment was that new and modern and accessible. So that's great for a lot of people getting into it. Uh, Paul, thank you so much. Let's have a great s- a snow season on the hills of Ontario, of Canada. Let's get people outside. As you say, we need this to get out the fresh air, get outdoors, meet people again, enjoy skiing and snowboarding as this country is famous for. Thank you so much for your time, Paul. Thank you, Jim. It's been an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to seeing everyone on the hills this winter. You got it. If you missed any part of our show, please go to 1059theregion.com or wherever you get your favorite podcasts, including Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.